Thanks, Santa. Can I add my warm welcome for everyone, especially if you are new or visiting? Uh, my name is Phil. If we haven't met before, I'd uh, love to meet you afterwards. Um, so it is our normal practice to work through books of the Bible, and at the moment we're doing a series on Romans, however we just read from Philippians. Um, the Roman series has been put on hold just for a moment while uh, Jono's in isolation this week, um, but the Philippians passage we've read actually fits quite well. Um, reading that last part again, what, what was just read to us, um, this could be right out of Romans, um, part of this. And as Chris said to me this morning, uh, Paul's often banging on about the same thing. So that's, that's really good. Um, how about we pray as we open God's word together? Lord God, we thank you for your word, uh, for the truth of your gospel, and for your favour towards us. Lord, we pray that we would see more of you today and be encouraged by it. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Sometimes we don't know the value of what we have. In the 1930s, a meteorite fell in a paddock and the farmer used it as a doorstop. He then sold the farm and the next farmer used it as a doorstop too. It was a really heavy rock, so it made a wonderful doorstop. Many years later, that farmer took it to a local university and was surprised to learn it was worth over $150,000. In 2014, in the French city of Toulouse, some house owners were investigating a leak in their attic, and to their surprise, they found a painting from the Renaissance period worth over $240 million. For both of these discoveries, the owners had no idea of the value of what they had. No idea of what these things were truly worth. Maybe you're still not sure about the value and wealth that can be found in Jesus. Perhaps you're yet to cash in. Our passage today speaks to this value and all that is on offer in Jesus. For many of us, though, we've known the value of what we have had in Jesus, but we forget. Perhaps we remember on a Sunday afternoon, but by Monday morning we have spiritual amnesia as we press on with the busyness of life. In either case, our ignorance or our forgetfulness, we place a much higher value on other things forgetting what being found in Jesus is truly worth. It's my prayer today that as we look at this passage, we will taste and see that the Lord Jesus is good and that we'll see afresh his surpassing worth and that we would remember this tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day after that as well. Uh, it's been a while since we've looked at Philippians. Um, this message was from two and a half years ago. Um, <laughs> but as Bob read from uh, chapter two earlier, I'll just give a quick recap on what we've looked at so far in the letter. Uh, Paul was writing this letter from prison to the Philippian church that he'd planted about 10 years prior. He calls them his gospel partners, his partners in spreading the good news about Jesus. He encourages them to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's a life rejoicing in hardship, valuing others more highly than themselves. 
living humble, servant-hearted lives like their King Jesus that we read about in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we also read of Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of people living for others, two men transformed by the good news of Jesus, transformed by what they have in Christ. Today, our focus shifts to Paul himself, unpacking his own transformed life since meeting Jesus some years earlier. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles open, that's good. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. It may have been two and a half years since I've delivered this message, but it's no trouble to say the same things to you again. Uh, Hopefully a safeguard for us. Uh, Already a massive theme in this letter, Paul reminds his readers to rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in Jesus. And this call to rejoice is a safeguard, a safeguard from forgetting our first love from forgetting the value of what we have in Christ and turning to some other thing. Now for a warning in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. These are strong words. It's not a description that you'd lightly toss around. So who is Paul referring to? It's likely that some in the Philippian church were saying that faith in Jesus is important, yes, but they also had to be circumcised to be true believers. They were likely of Jewish background, teaching it was necessary to add Jewish customs to the gospel. This warning then is to watch out for those trying to add to the good news that grace and forgiveness is a free gift by faith in Jesus alone. They're described here in three ways, as dogs, a Jewish derogatory term, as evildoers, translated with an emphasis on the doing part, and as mutilators of the flesh, referring to the Jewish practice of circumcision, but in a mocking kind of way. This this is pretty harsh language. So for some explanation, circumcision was a physical sign of the covenant promise God had made with his people in the Old Testament. He would be their God and they would be his people. Circumcision was a biblically mandated practice for Jews, physically marking them as God's chosen people. Sitting with this for a while, it makes you wonder why Paul has used such strong words these people might have looked like they were living the obedient Christian life, but without Christ as their anchor. You see, by adding to the gospel, you must also get circumcised. They were actually taking away from the good news of Jesus. By adding extra requirements, they were not trusting that Jesus' work on the cross was totally sufficient to pay the punishment that we deserved. Paul addresses this firmly with his strong words. So continuing in verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is really interesting phrasing. 
It is we Christians who are God's chosen people, not marked by a physical sign of a covenant relationship, but a spiritual circumcision. We share in the covenant promise that the Lord will be our God and we will be his people. Deuteronomy 30 speaks of this spiritual circumcision. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. In verse 2, Paul had described those to watch out for with three harsh terms, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. And now he describes Christians with three wonderful traits. Firstly, serving God by his spirit, describing his covenant relationship with God living in us by his spirit, enabling us to serve him. God has done a great miracle in the hearts of believers. It's no longer a physical sign, but we are given a new heart of flesh, taking us from spiritual death to life so that we can love him and serve him in response. Secondly, boasting in Christ, literally to glory in Christ. What characterizes Christians here is a love for Christ that exalts him in our hearts above all other things. And finally, no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in physical signs. No confidence in what we do to earn salvation. No confidence in anything that is apart from Christ. But confidence only in his righteousness given as a free gift. In verses 2 and 3, we have on view here a proud self-confidence compared to humble dependence on God. One group with their confidence in the flesh, boasting in what they do, and another with their confidence in Jesus, not themselves, boasting in Christ above all else. So we're to ask ourselves, where is my boast? There are only two choices. We see the same contrast in another, another passage from Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So for the proud and arrogant people within the Philippian church, Paul challenges them to a showdown, a, a boasting contest, if you like. Look with me at verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Let's briefly step through these seven credentials that Paul lists. Firstly, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a sign of God's covenant relationship with his people. And the eighth day was the proper timing that God had instituted. He was an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. His parents were both Jews, and he could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. Also from the tribe of Benjamin, 
the tribe that King Saul belonged to, the first king of Israel. Paul was a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents, speaking Hebrew as his native language. He had not forsaken his heritage, adopting Greek language and customs. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, the strictest group of Jews, who added their own regulations on top of the law of the Old Testament. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Paul was so zealous that he relentlessly attacked Christians before his conversion. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He'd kept the rules that the law required, at least outwardly he did. By all Jewish standards at the time, Paul had reason to boast, reason to put confidence in his heritage, his actions and himself. He ticked all the boxes. Read with me verse 7 and 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This is key. The things he used to pride himself on, listed here in verses 5 and 6, he now considers loss for the sake of Christ. Everything he once put his confidence in, measured himself, whatever he would hang his hat on, was now loss, worthless, unworthy of confidence. Put simply, moral living and human achievement have no ability to save and so are of no value to Paul anymore. They are now lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. His encounter with Christ had transformed his life. Knowing Christ was now worth more than everything else. In the last few weeks, as we've looked at Romans, we've been talking about our biggest problem. Our biggest problem can feel like all sorts of different things at different times. But the Bible tells us that our biggest problem is with God. Our sin stands in the way of relating to the true and living God. And the claim of the Bible is that only Jesus Christ can make the payment for that sin. Only Christ is worthy of our confidence. Only Christ is worthy of our boast. That compared to knowing Christ, everything else pales away. If you don't yet know Christ, as Paul speaks of here, may I encourage you to consider this claim, to consider these words of Paul and to consider what you find your joy in, what you hang your hat on, where you place your confidence. For the younger people here today, you're perhaps depending on belonging to a Christian family, but you've not yet put your own trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Having confidence in your heritage and not your relationship with Christ. Could some here today be relying on church affiliation, maybe turning up for years, merely playing Christianity? 
but without a real relationship with the God of the Bible? Could some here today be tempted to believe the lie that being good will make you right with God? That knowing Christ is optional so long as you live up to some moral standard? That last point is one that I know personally. Uh, Two days ago, you might find this hard to believe, I had my 20th birthday. (laughs) 20 years since I was born again, that is. Here is part of the testimony that I wrote uh, way back then about what God had done in my life, um, starting from just before I was saved. Being in a foreign country really challenged me. It made me think about who I was. I developed a view up to this point that I was essentially a good person. I felt that if God did exist, then he would see that I'd changed and that the way I now lived wouldn't be a problem. And I also believed that if he did not exist, then I was happy with the life that I led. I thought I had all my bases covered. Until the realisation hit me that I wasn't as good as I thought I was, In a place where I was away from everything and everyone I knew, I suddenly felt alone, empty and very much in need. Upon my return to Australia, I felt more open and receptive than I ever had before. I actively sought after my old Christian friends as they had something that I didn't. I could see in them a passion and a love far beyond anything that I had ever known. That love was for the Lord Jesus, and they were able to tell me that only he could fill the need that I'd always had. At around 2.30am on the 4th of March 2002, I gave my life to Christ in tears. I realised that I was a sinner like everyone else who needed forgiveness. I knew that I needed to be changed, and on that night, I put my hope and trust in Jesus as my Lord, to work these miracles in my life. Prior to being saved, my confidence was in what I did, what I brought to the table. I thought that living a good life was all that mattered. But by God's grace, he started a transformation in my heart, an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. God's work from beginning to end. He showed me that joy, peace and salvation are found in humble submission to Jesus alone. What were my gains became my losses and my losses became my gains. But these are all things that I forget too quickly. I remember them on a Sunday afternoon, but I forget by Monday morning when my heart boasts again in the things that I do. When I strive for God's approval, when I strive for the approval of others, when I focus on my plans, my desires, my reputation, when I forget the worth of being found in Jesus and settle instead for what has no eternal value. What did Paul think of his former gains, what he brought to the table? Continuing in verse 8, I consider them garbage 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. His blameless law-keeping. Garbage. The very best he could bring on his own. Garbage. His long list of achievements. Garbage. There is a complete transformation in his thinking. And for what outcome? That he would gain Christ and be found in him. This is worth more to a Christian than anything else in life. Being found in him means that we share his righteousness. That because of his sinless life and sacrifice on our behalf, when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but clothed in pure white, Jesus' righteousness and not our own. How good is it to be found in him? As Roman puts this, Romans puts this idea from Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Oh, how good is it to be found in him. C.S. Lewis once wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do we truly know the worth of what we have in Christ? Or do we treat him like a doorstop or a work of art hidden in an attic, not remembering the value of what we have? If you died today and you were asked at the gates of heaven, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? I lived a good life. I served at church. I loved my wife. I was kind to others. I gave to the needy. I supported a good cause. These will not cut it. Your credentials, accomplishments and reputation will be of no value for your salvation. If your answer is anything other than Jesus died for me, his blood has paid for my sins, then we may have missed the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and being found in him. That's the only answer that will matter before an almighty God who demands justice. If you've been around church for a while, you know all this. But Monday morning comes, and you, like me, forget. Be encouraged. Be comforted. For those whose trust is in Jesus, you are found in him, and he never changes. Your level of faith of any day of the week does not determine your salvation. That's still going. 
But it's his faithfulness towards you, a gift received by faith. At least we're like under a roof, I reckon. (laughs) Encouraged as we are by God's faithfulness towards us, our passage cuts right to the heart of our self-reliant tendencies and lifestyle. It's a timely reminder for all of us. Christ Jesus has already done everything required on the cross in our place. His blood pays the penalty for our sin. Faith in Jesus is all that is needed as we live in response to what he has done. In Christ we find grace, peace and worth that is far more valuable than anything else we can put our confidence in. We consider other things garbage simply because knowing Christ and being found in him is so much better. And so for the rest of chapter 3 in this letter, Paul shifts his focus to what it looks like as we serve him by his spirit. The next part is all about doing, but so, so importantly, doing as a response to God's love and not the other way around. This is very much like the progression that we see in Romans. After all, Paul's always banging on about the same stuff but don't we need the reminder? Gaining Christ and being found in him is worth more to a Christian than anything else in life as it enables us to live out our faith in response to his love. Having confidence in him, having our boast in him, finding our joy in him with this solid and sure hope as our foundation, we then grow in serving others living humbly obedient lives and pressing on in a life worthy of the gospel how about we close in prayer Lord God we want to thank you for your surpassing worth Lord we are sorry for forgetting this far too quickly We are sorry for valuing other things far too highly. We're sorry for boasting in things of no value. We are sorry for having our confidence in ourselves and in our own accomplishments. Lord God, help us to put our trust in you and in you alone. Help us to serve you by your spirit and to boast in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to have no confidence in what we can do to earn your favour. Help us to consider such things as garbage. Lord, we thank you that once our trust is in Jesus, we can know him and be found in him. We thank you that because of his sacrifice, we have a secure hope. Lord God, let this reality sink deep into our hearts that we would remember that you are good and gracious towards us. Lord, as we work out what it looks like to serve you by your spirit, help us to do so as a response to your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Chris.